Turn with me in your Bible this morning to Joel chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 18. Joel chapter 2, verse 18. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Reading, of course, with a view that we have a very high estimation of the Holy Scripture, believing it to be the verbally and inerrant and inspired and preserved Word of God. Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Let's hear God's Word. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate, with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savour shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion, And in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. 
Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing. This is reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, for a few moments, I want to speak to the boys and the girls and the young people that are here. And I want to read one verse of scripture, and it's this. Psalm 119, verse 18. And it's really a prayer. Open now mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now let me repeat that. Open now mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Now as you look toward the pulpit this morning, you'll see a number of little books on the pulpit. I'll explain what they are in a moment. But let me put up again something that I had set up last week. And this is, of course, a bar of dairy milk Cadbury's chocolate. And I talked last week about John Cadbury. And John Cadbury, he was married twice and he had three children. He had George, he had Richard, and he had Maria. Well, they're all connected with the great Cadbury's factory. And Richard Cadbury along with his father, he was a Christian and he loved the Lord Jesus Christ and he had a burden and a passion to reach the souls that lived in Birmingham, especially those that worked in the factory and also those that lived in the great village of Bourneville. And remember, we talked about that last week. Well, Richard Cadbury, after he got married, he had a daughter born and she was called Helen. Now let me tell you something about Helen when she was 12. In 1893, she was with her father in a great hall that had been built because Richard had built a great hall. We believe it was in Birmingham and many people came in to hear the word of God. Now many of these people were poor and they were hungry and many of these people had alcohol addictions and many other problems and the volunteers that were greeting them coming in, they, they would have given them, say, a bundle of clothes. Maybe a woman would have got a dress, a man would have got a jumper and a pair of trousers or a pair of shoes or a coat. And they would also uh, give them a food parcel home with them. And they would have also given them some chocolate and some cocoa because, remember, they were trying to get them to stop drinking alcohol. But in this great hall, not only were the volunteers busy doing this, but they were also preaching the gospel. And one of those gospel preachers was Helen Cabri's father called Richard. And he told the people about their sin and how they needed to repent, how they had a soul, and how they needed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Well, sitting at the back at the age 12 in this great hall was Helen Cabri. And she was watching all this now, she knew that being born into a Christian home didn't make her a Christian. And she knew that going to a Christian church didn't make her a Christian. And she knew that having a Bible and reading a Bible didn't make her a Christian. So that particular time at age 12, in 1893, she went into the inquiry room that night. And one of the volunteers spoke to her. And then they got her father, Richard, to come and he had the wonderful joy 
of leading his 12-year-old daughter to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that was a wonderful thing to happen. Boys and girls, young people, I wonder, have you received Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? You have to ask yourself that question. Well, Helen was so excited, and she went into school the next day, and do you know what she did? She told her best friend, guess what happened to me last night? I became a Christian. I've trusted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. And the wee girl says, well, 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 I go to church. And then Helen said, but going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Oh, hold on a minute. And she went to her school desk and she got this big Bible out. Now, she, she had a Bible with her in school. And she started showing her friend. And she said, go you home and you get your Bible and you read these verses. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And the next day, whenever the friend came back into school, she too was excited because she said, Helen, Helen, I have something to tell you. I've asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be my savior last night. Isn't that wonderful? And together, the two of them pledged that every day at school, they would do something wonderful. They would read a portion of God's word at break time or at lunchtime. And that actually started, now listen to me carefully, the Pocket Testament League. Because they were thinking, well, you know, Bibles, they're very heavy and they're too big to carry about. How could I carry a big Bible like this about in the dress? So this is what Helen came up with. She came up with sewing a pocket in her dress. Now, I don't know if it was in the inside or the outside. But they started carrying portions of God's word or the New Testament, like what's on the pulpit this morning, and they put them in their pocket. And they got a pledge written up. And by the time that um, Helen was 16 years of age, there was between 60 and 80 young people who were all pledged at school and in the factory and they were reading every day God's precious word. Now, at the age of 16, Helen went on to university. And university is a very, very wonderful place to go to, young people, for learning and education. But I want to tell you, it's a very dangerous place for a Christian to go to. Because there, there's a lot of anti-God, anti-Christian professors and lecturers and they say a lot of things like the Bible's full of errors or there is no God or there's no such place as heaven or hell and, and um, so many other horrible things. And Helen came under that. And she began to doubt, is the Bible really the word of God? Is there really a God in hell? Does Jesus Christ really exist? And for a time she was full of doubt and fear. Then something dreadful happened in her life. Her daddy died. Richard. And after the funeral, a number of months passed, then she started helping her mummy again in the big hall, watching the volunteers, the food parcels, the, the clothes, the, the, the help uh, to wean people off the alcohol, the preaching of the word of God. And her soul was revived and she came back to the Lord. Now, during that time, of course, the Pocket Testament League idea had sort of lapsed a wee bit. It had really sort of just gone by the way. 
But in God's providence, the evangelist Charles Alexander came to the United Kingdom, met Helen Cabray, fell in love, they got married, and the Pocket Testament League was revived. And to this day, and I have to finish, I'll maybe preach a whole sermon on Helen Cabry sometime. I think that would be good. I think you would enjoy that. You'd learn from that. But listen to me carefully. From that time, when her and her friend read the Bible in school, there's been over a hundred million people who have been reached through the Pocket Testament League with either a pocket testament, a portion of God's word, or the whole of the Bible. Now, where did it all start, boys and girls? Young people. It started with a young girl at 12 giving her life to Christ. And it started with that young girl having a desire to read the word of God. Open thy mine eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And it started with that young girl having a desire to serve God and be counted as a Christian. And you know, if there's one thing that we need, we need a band of young men and young women in school, university, in the workplace, that will be loyal and true to Christ, no matter what a professor says or what anybody else says or does. We need that decision in their heart to be loyal to Christ and his word. I wonder, would you make that decision? Not just decide to become a Christian, but you're going to really live for Christ and pledge yourself. I'm going to read God's word every day. And if I'm too busy to read God's word, I'm too busy. Okay? Can I leave that thought with you? I'll uh, set these down in case they fall. Um, I have a little bar of Cadbury's chocolate for all the young people that are here in the bag. Uh, don't let me forget. Okay? Well, the Lord bless you, and we are praying much for you young people at this time. Okay? Um, now, this morning, we're returning again for the second time to look at Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Joel chapter 2, verse 18 reads as follows. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. And I have simply entitled the message, The Jealousy of the Lord Toward His People, Part 2. Now this is a follow-up message from last Lord's Day morning. On that occasion, after a brief introduction to Joel and his ministry, I set before you two main headings. One, the reproach that must be recognized. Joel is telling the people of Judah there's something wrong in the land. The land is in trouble. This plague of locusts is a judgment from God. It's having a terrible effect on the country and the church. This plague of locusts, he's telling them, is a harbinger of a greater manifestation of God's wrath. There's a future day of wrath coming. Joel's day, remember, was a day of destruction. The whole land was destroyed. The locusts had devoured it all. So did this northern army that was coming. So did the great day of wrath that was coming. It was a day of departure from God as the living and the true God. 
It was also a day of despondency. An alarm was needed because God's people were spiritually asleep. And remember, we, we sought to apply it. We said there's something wrong in our land. And remember, we asked the question, is there an army of locusts eating and destroying where we labor? And the Lord God is behind that form of judgment. The second main heading was this, the repentance that must be required. We thought about Joel 2, verses 12 to 17. We noted there's a personal call here, turn ye to me. He's addressing all the people of Judah. He starts with the spiritual leadership. He says to them, rend your hearts and not your garments. We applied that. There's a particular call. Weep between the porch and the altar. And the leadership's to learn that the Lord is perfectly just and righteous to send this judgment. And a true spirit of honesty is needed. A true spirit of humility is needed. A true spirit of brokenness is needed in the word weep. We said this is a positional call. The porch and the altar, it's a reference to their service, to their sacrifice in the place of the shed blood. It's a reference to supplication. Going to meet the Lord, and they're serious about meeting with him. Now let me encourage you. Take time to re-listen online to that message. Let's apply that message to our own hearts and our own lives. Let's apply that message to the life of our own church. And the life of our wee country. Could I encourage you as well to share it with family and friends if you haven't already done so? Could I encourage you to tell others if you've been blessed by it and strengthened? Let's rediscover what prompted this man of God. A man whose name means my God is Jehovah to proclaim this. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. You see, Joel 2, 18 it's a pivotal text. It's really the hinge that opens and closes the door. It's, it's a turning point from a period of blasting to a period of great blessing. Now, my third main point on this passage last Lord's Day was this. The response that must be remembered. You see the word then in verse 18? The word then is hotan. And it means at that time, at, at that moment, at that precise occasion. Here is the Lord's response. Once the reproach has been recognized and the repentance is required fulfilled, then, at that time, at that hour, at that moment, will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Now, I only had a brief paragraph, but I've expanded it out quite slightly this morning. Three things here in this final point, the response that must be remembered. What do we remember? The character of God. Notice the word young people here, then will the Lord be jealous for his land. Underline the word jealous. You see, we're learning here about the character of the Lord. What is God like? Well, he has got many natural and moral attributes. 
And one of his many attributes is this. He is a jealous God. Now there's 43 references in the Bible to the word jealous or jealousy. And the prophet Joel, remember, my God is Jehovah. He knows something about the character of his God. Because he knows that being jealous is a great characteristic of his God. Now, now let me ask the question. Do you know that the God of the Bible is a jealous God? You've got to think of the nature and character of God. We're familiar with God is love. We're familiar with the truth that God is light and God is faithful and God is merciful and gracious and holy. We also know he's a God of wrath who hates sin. But do you know he's also a jealous God? He is filled with a holy jealousy for his name, for his cause, for his church, for his people, for his land. He's filled with a holy jealousy for his son, Jesus Christ. Now turn over there in your Bible to the book of um, Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, and look with me at verse 5. Exodus 20 and verse 5. It says, speaking of idolatry and idols, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. So we'll ask why. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now here's the law first mentioned. Here's the first time the word jealous is used in the Bible and it's a reference to God for I, the Lord thy God, am a what? I'm a jealous God. Here's the Lord's argument against idolatry. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers. You see, the Lord takes seriously his covenant relationship with his people. Now let's turn to another reference. This time Exodus 34. And look with me at the verse 14. Exodus 34 and verse 14. Let's hear the word of God. Exodus 34, 14. For thou shalt worship no other God. Why? For. And here's, we could translate that because. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, do you see that? I want you to understand that. What does that mean? God is jealous. God is a jealous God. That's what the Bible teaches us. You see, in our day, jealousy has a, a negative meaning, an evil connotation. It's a bad thing. It's an imperfection, and we so often focus on the negative. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it has the same negative meaning. It can have the same negative meaning. An individual, say a husband or a wife, um, an individual in that context of relationship uh, can have a heart and mind that's full of a spirit of jealousy and envy toward his wife. And that green-eyed monster of jealousy and envy can, can lead to other sins. And it can have an impact upon that relationship. So jealousy can have a negative meaning. But it also can have a positive meaning. You see, jealousy is a proper attribute in God himself. We're learning what God is like. 
God has a holy jealousy, a loving jealousy, a gracious jealousy, a just jealousy. It's not a sinful, evil, bad, imperfect thing in the heart of God. And when the Bible says God is a jealous God, in what sense is it used? Well, it's used in the sense that it speaks of an intense loyalty in a relationship. God is in a covenant relationship with us. He has redeemed us by the precious blood we're born of the Spirit. He has a binding relationship to us. There's an intense loyalty in that relationship. And you think of the intense loyalty of a husband and wife relationship. It's not that long ago since we were praising and rejoicing with Bobby and Sadie Graham and that the fact that they were married for 60 years. Like who is married for 60 years today? 50 years, 40 years, 30 years. Do you know if you're five years married, you're looked upon as an odd day. You think of Hollywood at this minute in time. I guarantee if you went to Hollywood and looked at the lives of all the so-called great and good, the film stars, there wouldn't be one of them that has been faithful to their husband and wife for more than five years in any relationship. They've been married, again, multiple times. Why? Because they've been disloyal in that relationship. Faithfulness and being jealous is connected. So you've got to think of intense loyalty in a relationship. But also, it speaks of an intense zealousness in a relationship. You've got to think of a man full of zeal for someone or something. Phineas was full of zeal for the cause of God. Think of the Lord Jesus, John 2 and 17, the action of Christ in the temple, cleansing the temple, driving out the money changers. You've made my father's house a house of merchandise when it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. And then the disciples remembered whenever he'd done that, it is written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And here's the context. The, the action of Christ flowed from a true jealousy for God and his cause. So I want you to think of God as a jealous God. And what does that mean? God is an inward, pure, holy desire. And the action that springs from that pure, holy desire is this. It's an act of zealousness. It's manifest. See, our God is a jealous God. Well, there, that's really a sermon all in itself. Get a concordance. Use Bible Gateway and King James Version. Look up every reference. You'll see them. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse uh, 24. Remember, this is the second reading of the law, 40 years later. Moses, of course, is speaking to the children of Israel in the age of the River Jordan about to cross into the land of promise. And he said to them, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. He says in chapter 5 and verse uh, 9, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the with the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 15, For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Here's Moses reminding them 40 years on from giving of the law the first time of the true character of God. You've got to think of Joshua before his death. 
Joshua 24 and verse 19. And Joshua said unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. And if we go back to Exodus 34 and verse 14, for thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You see, the name of the Lord is Jealous. It is a representation of who God is. It's a representation of who and what God is like. That that name demands comprehension. Oh, that we could rediscover that the Lord has a holy jealousy for his name. He takes seriously all who blaspheme it and speak evil against it. He is jealous for his own person, his natural and moral attributes. He is jealous for his word. Every word of God is pure. He has exalted his holy word above all his name. Holy and reverent is his name, but he has exalted his word above it. He is jealous over his people. Why? Because he's in a covenant relationship with them. His people's the apple of his eye. They're the darling of his bosom. Do you know that if you're in Christ and you're a Christian, he loves you with a holy, pure love. And he wants to bless you. He wants to do you good. He wants to help you. And the Lord is full of a holy jealousy for your personal welfare. He delights in you this morning. Do you know the Lord is full of jealousy for Jerusalem? Zechariah 8 and 2. Do you know that the Lord is full of jealousy for the land of Israel? The land of Israel is the only land that's got the title deeds to the land. And they were given to them by God. And that he too is in a covenant relationship with his ancient people. Ezekiel 36 and verse 5. We haven't time to turn to it. Ezekiel 39 and verse 25. The Lord is full of a whole jealousy. Not only for his name, but for the land of Israel. Now the fact that the God of the Bible is a jealous God. Is consistent with genuine love. Infinite grace. And covenant faithfulness. He is jealous of anything and everything that robs him of his glory and robs him of his rightful place. And you see, we see this being played out in the days of Joel. The Lord, this jealous God, is behind the plague of locusts. And this jealous God is said to his people through the prophet Joel... Turn ye to me, rend your hearts, not your garments. Weep between the porch and the altar. He's calling upon them to genuinely repent. He's saying to them, walk before me, serve me, love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Turn from him and I will curse you. Turn to me and I will counsel and comfort and help you. I will turn out Of my holy jealousy for you. And you will taste and see the marvel of my mercy and covenant faithfulness. He sent this locust army. He called it my army. And he says, now having done that, if you repent, I will now turn it all around. When my people turn to me in humility and honesty and in brokenness and since genuine repentance, there's a confession of sin. There's a acknowledgement of wrongdoing. There's a crying to him, a crying for him. Lord, come. Lord, return. Lord, spare thy people. 
And what do we read? Then. You see, the Lord turns. And all the jealousy that was against his people because of their sin, it turns around 180 degrees and all the jealousies are turned toward his people for their supplications. And the same depth of fury of wrath is now turned to the flood and flurry of grace and mercy, endless love and compassion. God has heard their cry. God has answered the prayer. Is that not the great lesson of the ages? We asked the question this morning, does God repent of the evil planned and purposed upon a people? The answer is yes. Think of the incident of the golden calf. Exodus 32 and 7, the Lord's anger was waxed hot against the people. The Lord has turned to holy jealousy due to blatant idolatry. He wants to wipe out his ancient people. Moses prays. He asked the Lord to turn from his wrath. The Lord repented. Here's a tremendous historical example of God being jealous for his name. And through repentance being displayed and prayer being offered. And and the Lord then repents of this evil and turns to deal in grace and in mercy with them. Didn't he do the same thing in the land of Syria? Not just the land of Israel. Think of the capital Nineveh, Jonah 3. Forty days and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. Judgment's coming because of your sin. That was all Jonah said. Yet forty days Nineveh shall be destroyed. And the people, along with the king, asked, who can tell if God will repent and turn from his fierce anger? And because of their repentance, God repented of the evil. He didn't send judgment to Nineveh for another hundred years. And we'll bring it even closer to home. Let's come to the place called Calvary. The judgment of God at Mount Calvary. The wrath of God being poured out upon Christ. And then after that wrath of God was extinguished, then we've got the glorious message of the resurrection. And what followed the resurrection was a 10-day prayer meeting waiting for the promise of the Father. And what followed then was the day of Pentecost. And there you have it fulfilled. All the fulfillment of God's prophecy. Joel chapter 2, 28 and 29. Many other examples could be given. Where the Lord turned from judgment to mercy. Because God's people rendered their hearts. Because God's people repented of their sin. You see, when we repent, here's the law of the ages. When we're broken and honest. Then the Lord repents of the blasting and the evil that he planned upon us. When we turn with all our hearts to him, then he turns to us. And he's entreated for us, it says in our text. What does it say? Then will the Lord pity his people. I want you to learn secondly this morning... Remember not just the character of God, but remember the comfort of God. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Think of the word pity. It can be translated comfort his people. There's a fourfold comfort here. Let me be very quick. The power of the Lord works for us. When you read Joel chapter 2 verses 19 to 26, you see God at work on behalf of his people. He says in verse 20, if you look at it very quickly, he says, but I will remove far off from you 
the northern army and drive them into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea. He said in verse 19, Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. And then if you can write down to verse 25, he says, And I will restore to you the years that the locust have eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Now, do you see the picture here? The Lord is saying, I will remove the northern army and drive them out. The, the Lord is saying, I will send you corn and wheat and oil and wine. The Lord is saying, I will restore the years that the locust have eaten. Now think of these I wills. It's the power of the Lord working for us. Can, can you think of this land of Judah? The barns were empty. Not one ounce of grain was found in it. There's not a root left to spring up in any tree. There's not a, a green shoot in the field. But now he's going to deal with them in a different way. Not only is he saying, I will drive back the enemy and remove them and restrain them, but I'll restore you. I'll send you bumper crops. There's going to be blessing. There's going to be a time of sowing again. I'll give the rain in the season, the early and the latter rain. You're going to have a good harvest. Your barns will be full once more. And I restore to you the years that the locust have eaten. Now think of our Christian life for a moment. The Lord works for us by his power and strength. And gives us victory over the enemy. And the enemy that reproached us has now been removed. He's, he's been restrained. Uh, and the Lord says, I will send you blessing. And I'll restore the years that the locust have eaten. Think of the years in which we serve sin and Satan. We live for evil and wickedness. And now in these years, when we're in a right relationship with the Lord, we're serving him. And the Lord says, in these years, I will bless you. And I will give your years that you've wasted, in a sense, back. So you can be restored and forgiven and brought into a life of usefulness to serve me. Think of the life of the early disciples. In their former years, they served their boats and the fish of the sea. They, they were fishermen. And in the call of God, leave all to follow me. In the years, whatever age they were, they'd spent in the world and living for self and sin. These men are trained. These men are tested. These men are given gifts and talents. Think of Peter at Pentecost. One sermon. 3,000 souls is brought into a saving relationship with the Lord. Think of the Apostle Paul. If we say he was 30 when he was converted on the Damascus Road, he had to be 30 at least. Because he couldn't have been a fully-fledged Pharisee until he was at least 30. So he could even have been older, between 30 and 40. And all of those years, he had no real knowledge of God. He had no heart relationship with the Lord. He lived for self. He served self and sin. He was full of self-love. He was full of his superficial religion. He was busy blasting the church and causing it to bleed. And now after he's saved... He's full of the Holy Ghost and power. He's been used to build the church of Christ. And the Lord is restoring those wasted years. 
Think of our lives, years of coldness, prayerlessness, backsliding, lip service, playing church, spirit of worldliness, years of sin. Now, wait a minute, Mr. McLaughlin. Years of sin. Do you know that not fully loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is a sin? Do you know that unbelief is a sin? Do you know that prayerlessness is a sin? Oh, you see, the problem is it's all lip service. It's outward. It's outward conformity to to a religious lifestyle. But that love is not seen in our actions, in our attitude, in, in our announcements. And oh, that we had a holy jealousy for the Lord's name, his word, his day, his son, his people, his church, his cause. We can't turn back time. Those are wasted years. They're gone. But the Lord can do it. The Lord can so bless our life from now on, from this day forward. He can deal so wondrously with us, as he says there in verse 26, that we'll not be ashamed. We'll not imagine how how much blessing the Lord has brought. Think for a moment of the life of the slave trader John Newton. Remember he wrote to him Amazing Grace and Loch Foyle and after the storm or in the midst of the storm. What age did he get converted? It was just before he was 50. And the slave trader, remember, became a preacher. This vile mouthed man that was full of wrath and fury entering the pulpit at the age of 50 in the Anglican Communion. He preached till he was 80. 30 years he served the Lord. And think of his sermons. Think of his great hymns. They're with us to this day. His life, his, his, his ministry. You see, the locusts had came and destroyed it all. And maybe he felt, you know what? There's no point in going on. It's hopeless. But that wasn't to be the case. He discovered if he repented and brought into a right relationship with the Lord and rendered his heart and brokenness and honesty and humility, then the Lord displays his power and the Lord works in us. Very quickly here, not only will the power of the Lord work in us, but the presence of the Lord will dwell with us. If we look at verse 27 of Joel 2, it mentions this. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. Isn't that tremendous? You see, it's as if the Lord is saying, he can't be away from his people for long. When they're in a backslidden state, he takes steps to bring them back into a right relationship. Why? Because of the apple of his eye. He has a love for them that's everlasting and true. He has redeemed us by blood. We're we're born of a spirit. His love was within our hearts. You think of Jesus Christ. One of his names is Emmanuel. God with us. We long that his presence is felt by a real experience. So we've got the inner consciousness and the inner witness of his word. And his word comes with power to convict us. And we have a real sense of his presence. I was listening last Sunday night to that tremendous history of the Free Presbyterian Church. God came down. And men felt it. In the 60s, the 70s and 80s, that's what happened. In Ulster, God came down. 
in the power of the Spirit. And his presence was a felt reality. And there was an awe. And there was a fear. And there was a love. And there was a family spirit. And there was a desire to go forth and serve him together. The presence of the Lord will dwell with us. Let me tell you something else. The purpose of the Lord will flow through us. What does Joel say in verse 28? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. See, not only are we indwelt by the Spirit of God, but we can be full of the Spirit of God. Be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, Ephesians 5.18, but be full of the Spirit. If we're full of the Spirit, listen to me, we'll have no desire for man-made idols. We'll have no connection with falsehood. We'll have no love for the world and its heathen ways. We'll have no attraction for sin. We'll be sickened by sin. We'll have a hatred of it. There'll be a love of righteousness. The, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, will equip us for service. Where did that desire come for little Helen Calvary to pray? Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. The Spirit of God. Where did that desire come to share excitement of trusting Christ as a Christian? It came from the Spirit of God with her friend. That desire to start reading the Bible with her friend at school and at work and the pocket testimony, the Spirit of God was at work. You see, it's the power of the Spirit that equips us for service. In other words, God is promoting his kingdom in and through us. Remember what we read in Acts 1 and verse 8? But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. See, this, this was to fulfill the prophecy of Joel, the day of Pentecost. There's a link up between Acts 2 and Joel 2, 28 and 29. And I want you to notice here, it's not just one nation, Jews. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. It's Jews and Gentiles. And I want you to notice here, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams. Can you get a sense of that, old men? I'll not serve God again. There's no hope for me. I'm an old man. I will never see the blessing of God like in former times. It's useless. But that's not to be the case. The old men are involved. The young men who are full of zeal and passion to rise up and become leaders and pillars in the work of God. Even the servants, the maid servants, the lowly maidens, the, the young girls, like 12 and 13, like Helen Capri. Not many mighty and noble, but, but the poor and the lowest. See, God's at work. And God is making his church a powerful instrument on the earth. And let me ask this. Can God come down and revive the Free Presbyterian Church? Can God come down and visit the church of the firstborn in Northern Ireland? Can she be a powerful instrument on earth again for the Lord? Yes, she can. Why would she not be? Because of an indication that her heart is not right with the Lord. Here's the Lord's program of world evangelism. And it starts with the pouring out of the Spirit. And you know it's not over. Acts 28 has no conclusion. Serving the Lord in every generation in the power of the Spirit. I have to finish. The promises of the Lord will be realized in us. All the promises of God are yea and amen. This promise of Joel, Joel 2, 28, 29, was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost. And every promise of the book is yea and amen to all who are in Christ. 
So we remember the comfort of God. And that comforts us. Surely to know that the power of the Lord works for us. And surely to know that the presence of the Lord will dwell with us. And to know that the purpose of the Lord will flow through us. And the promises of the Lord will be realized in us. Surely that's a comfort. And one final thing. And I appreciate your patience. Remember the counsel of God. If God could say one thing through Joel to Judah and from Joel to us, it would be this. Learn the lesson of the locusts. Dabble in sin. Play church. Don't be real. Don't love the Lord. It'll lead to blasting. You see, we can't afford to offend him. Why? Because he's a jealous God. Do we realize that? Our God is a jealous God. We can grieve him. We can vex him. And we can offend him. And what's his counsel to us? Rend your hearts and not your garments. Tell him that we have sinned. Cry out for him. Spare us, thy people. Turn to us. Turn from all that grieves him. You see, this is a call to God's people. What does he say? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. His people. He's addressing his people. And where do we find him? We find him in the book. Knowing God through the reading of the scriptures. Give attention to reading. You see, the book is a revelation of heaven. But do we not just pay lip service to reading the book? I remember a man in the faith mission reading the scriptures. And this is how he read the Bible. He turned every page. And he did honestly turn every page. I watched him. But they didn't read it. But he turned every page. That was his testimony. Did you read the Bible, Paul? I turned every page, and so he did. But he was paying lip service. He wasn't reading the book. Give attention to reading. At the throne, it's a throne of grace. And that's why the prayer meeting is important. We come and present ourselves. And if you're a communicant member of the church, you should be at the prayer meeting, or at least one of the prayer meetings during the week. Or in the Lord's day. And of course, we find him at Calvary. As he reveals himself through the personal work of his son. I, I was thinking of this, and we're not going to sing the hymn, because our time is well gone. But there's a desperate need to see God again as a jealous God. A God who is at work to revive and restore and return to his church. That's what we need. And that's the message of Joel 2.18. The Lord bless you today. I thank you for coming. Thank you for listening.